we are flying on a helicopter over a 30,000 acre fire to drop in and get a urine sample. (laughs) (laughs) This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in today. Today, I am stoked because I have on maybe one of my first friends in Missoula, definitely one of my first friends at the University of Montana, and that is Professor Brent Ruby. Brent, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. This this one's been a long time coming. I think just, uh, just to get it out there, some genius when I came here to interview back in 2011 put you on my interview loop so for a business school professor to have you know, i don't even know what your title is like physiologist of some kind on the interview loop just stood out like what the heck am i talking to this guy for um then i met you and my wife maggie met you and we we're like okay i get it yeah brent is uh he's a big part of the sales pitch for Missoula. So thank you for then. And thank you for your friendship since it's, um, it's been fun. Absolutely. I think that might've been Larry Guyanchetta, who was the Dean at that time of the business school. Smart guy, Larry. Guyanchetta. And I knew him. I've known him for a long time. And I, I knew that when he, he, when he called and asked me, could you talk to Justin? I'm like, absolutely. He's coming from Seattle. Yeah, it's great. And so, yeah, I was very pleased to chat. I always, I always love chatting with uh, prospective faculty members. I've done that quite a bit from different schools, physical therapy and others. Um, and I think it just, my, I, my goal in those conversations is just sort of set the stage, set, sort of recalibrate the candidate and just sort of describe my experience when I came and how, how can we be as welcoming as possible to new people coming in? And to make them feel like instantly, I'm going to slide right into this spot and I'm going to be one of this team, which is, that's kind of the goal of those visits, I think. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was super clear and I really appreciate it because it, it sort of made me feel like I was hitting the ground running in many ways. And it's been really fun to collaborate on a wide variety of things uh, in the years since. Um, Brent, let's talk a little bit about how you got to the University of Montana. You've been here, what, 20 plus years at this point, I believe. 25 plus years. Jeez Louise. Wow. Yeah, I know. I came, I, I was finishing my, uh, doctoral studies at the University of New Mexico, which if I close my eyes, it doesn't seem that long ago. I can still taste the awesome food of Albuquerque and, and the smells and everything about living in that desert climate. But Joe, my wife and I uh, were open pretty much to move anywhere I got a position. And at that point, I mean, there was no internet. The internet was just beginning and I didn't have an email address. You didn't apply for jobs online. Everything was sent snail mail and phone calls by landlines. Mm-hmm. And so I accepted the position here after being rejected from a few other places. And uh, the interview process here was the only one I knew, <laughs> and, but it was fantastic. It felt awesome. And I really had a really, I had a very strong feeling that I would really, really like this place. Um, there was a lot of things to do, 
upon accepting the position. And the other thing that was cracked me up when I think about it, and I think about people nowadays, when the dean called me, I answered on a landline at the lab at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque there. And the dean says, well, we'd like to offer you the position. And I said, without hesitation, less than a few seconds uh, elapsed from the time he said that to the time I said, I'll take it. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, yeah. Although yep. I think you've become a better negotiator since that moment. Yeah. <laughs> I have learned. It takes 25 years to learn how to negotiate a bit better. And so how would you but, how would you describe your field of study? Ah, uh, well, yeah, I bounced around quite a bit as an undergrad, wondering if physical therapy was my niche and discovered that I didn't think it would be, and then medicine, and then and then exercise science or exercise physiology. And uh, once I got a taste of that, it was like all the all the puzzle pieces came into focus. Uh, it was still, it, it came into focus better. Mm -hmm. It was still completely out of focus. Sure. Like I didn't know how, how I would turn this into a, a job or a real career. Um, and so we, I moved to Albuquerque to go right into grad school because what do people do in this field that don't get a job right away? Well, they transition right to grad school. That was the <laughs> easiest thing. And and I got a research uh, fellowship there, which covered tuition and everything, which was outstanding because Joe and I had like no money. Um, but yeah, the, just the experience at New Mexico within, a, within the first year, I was able to be involved on a search committee. And then the, when that new faculty member came in, it just revolutionized uh, the research opportunities for students mm -hmm. um, at that place. And I just, there was something about that kind of math, something about that kind of systematic decision-making based on a creative process to engineer and generate the idea for the study. It just really fascinated me. And that's kind of the, that became my my chosen path but all the way through i never once stopped to think oh man what's going to be next oh no what's going to happen next i don't know what i'm going to do when i'm done i never thought that way i just did what i needed to do while the moment was uh upon me and that's sent, that's really sort of served me well i don't like to dwell too much on the past and i don't like to dwell on what might be downstream I focus wholeheartedly on the here and now. Mm -hmm. So my wife gives me such crap because I, I'm a, a horribly bad uh, multitasker. I can focus on one thing really good and that's about it. Um, but this field of study allowed me to link up my interests in uh, the exercise training and racing that I was doing a lot at that time. And it helped me explain to myself why I wasn't better than I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could see I'm that. Like, we how should, come I can't be better? <laughs> and we should interject. I mean, when Brent says he can't be better, I mean, you were a standout runner and then became a successful triathlete up to the Ironman distance, competed in the Hawaii Ironman. Um, so to say you couldn't be better, I mean, of course you can always be better, but you, you performed yeah. at, a, at a quite a high level. And, and I almost think of you as like a, a, a Tim Ferriss sort of person before Tim Ferriss existed. Like you're, hmm. you're an actual scientist and you're performing a lot of like your sort of 
I don't know, research ideas, maybe you're testing them on, on yourself as an athlete. It must have been a really interesting time while you were competing and studying this stuff at the same time. Yeah, and that that went on and lingered quite a long time. Um, we, uh, I really wanted to do some some work with Ironman athletes, and but I knew that that was not going to be easy because they don't want to be messed with on the day of race day. Mm -hmm. uh, they're oh so willing to talk to you about everything they do in their training world and eating world. Uh, as long as it's not race day. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I thought, well, I guess the best way to study Ironman would be to study myself. Um, and so that's what we did in 2006. We did a study with some uh, stable isotope tracers to calculate uh, the energy demands of the human in that race and then the water flux. But then we also took muscle samples before and after the race, which was kind of interesting um, to do, but that all, that all happened in 2006. The last time I raced was in 2010. Okay. But yeah, it's been, it doesn't matter if you're studying yourself. It doesn't matter if you're studying an athlete. It doesn't matter if you're studying somebody in an occupational or tactical environment, the environment bears down on the human in such an interesting way and how the human interacts with that at the same time, they're trying to work at this level or that level or higher. Um, all those combinations of things seem somewhat interesting or somewhat simple to possibly predict, but they're anything but. You, you tweak the environment one little way and everything changes in the muscle. So I, I've never lost interest. I've never lost sort of my desire to reinvent questions or revisit questions or establish new questions. It's, it's an ever-changing environment of uh, research design. And a lot of that gets dictated by where the funding sources are suggesting researchers go. Um, but those are pretty broad. And so we can, we can kind of invent and reinvent research questions over and over uh, and that's what we've been doing ever since we started the research center here at Montana. So, yeah, let's talk about, um, actually, before we get to the center, let's talk about just kind of your general approach to science. I mean, you seem in many ways to me as someone who's just able to kind of craft a question, uh, that intersects with opportunity really well. I mean, mm. you've studied athletes, you've studied, occupational athletes like firefighters and soldiers. Um, you, you've looked at the effects of environment, of different, all kinds of different factors. How do you kind of, like, what are the grand questions you're interested in as a scientist, if there are grand questions? And then within that, how are you sort of trying to triangulate where the opportunity lies for, for you as a researcher? Mm, that's a really good, uh, a very well-phrased question, because I think... Every scientist has their sort of pet questions or their, their mainstream focus. And I've kind of always been criticized by colleagues as not having that, hmm. I guess. Maybe I don't wear that on my sleeve. Uh, what I do wear on my sleeve, both sleeves, is some super elaborate, super powered cufflinks that allow me uh, massive amounts of creativity in any situation. So if somebody were to say, here's the problem, Here's the setting, develop a research question around that. That's the kind of thing that I 
crave. Okay. I like that more than having a selfish, single-minded research agenda that all I study is uh, this enzyme under these conditions in the rat hind limb muscle. Okay. <laughs> I'm much more, and that's why I enjoy working with researchers from a wide range of disciplines, especially young researchers, because they can pose their question or their issue. I might not know anything about the measurement techniques, but I can help formulate the questions and help build that even without not fully understanding what they want to measure and why. Um, but my, I guess my big, my big goal questions have to do with how the human interacts with uh, heat, cold, or high altitude, um, and how the muscle interacts with that environment, maybe at the same time or separate from that, uh, and how muscle recovery is influenced by different food sources, um, some being common, some being atypical. And then also, I'm very driven by uh, the comparison between males and females in these hmm. different settings. Uh, females are dramatically underrepresented in a lot of the research designs that, that physiology studies. And we've always had a commitment to uh, integrating females in a lot of our studies. Sure. Not all of them. But when, when we can and when we can push that, uh, we definitely include that because it, it does a disservice to, well, it does a great disservice to females in general. But when you talk about military and you talk about fire, it does a huge disservice to their rank and the one that they have worked so hard to get to just say that they're small men, smaller men, and just down adjust, downscale everything. Sometimes that's true. A lot of times it's not. My wife and I participated in your study in Hawaii on the volcano. And I mean, you've chased smoke jumpers and soldiers around. Like, talk about, let's get, get specific on some of these, these studies and where they've taken you. Well, when I first came to Montana, of course, I didn't know what my research path would, how, what that trajectory looked like. I just know, I just knew that I had to get my act together and um, start. A, an agenda from scratch. Within about a year of being here, uh, one of my colleagues who was retired from the university, but still very much connected to it, is his name is Brian Sharkey, and he's had a rich history within fire. Um, he established a lot of the fitness standards for firefighters and mm -hmm. the work capacity testing program, and that goes back to the early 60s. So Brian had this brilliant idea. He says, Brent, let's, let's take the train from Whitefish to Minneapolis for the national conference that we were gonna to go to, the American College of Sports Medicine. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. It was not. <laughs> That's a terrible way to travel. Well, I, it might be a lot better now, but back then it was not good because you could smoke on the train. Oh, geez. And so it was just, uh, it was the, not, the best place in the whole car was the window car. And it's just, it's a, it's a bummer to go through Glacier National Park on the train and the only way you can really see it is to be in the smoking car. Yeah. But we get we get to the conference and the conference goes off. I had pre I was presenting some research that I did at New Mexico and met some uh, excellent researchers there that were intrigued by that this research model that I had built uh, while down there. But Brian and I discovered a grant opportunity uh, through the army 
that was called the Defense Women's Health Research Program. And it had a new investigator award that was attached to it, okay. which means we're willing to give money to somebody that's brand new that really doesn't know fully what they're doing. <laughs> and Perfect. I fit that Sign perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Brian and I schemed and dreamed and plotted and planned on the long 24 hour, whatever train ride back to Whitefish. And, and I applied for that grant that following, uh, well, that summer and into the fall, uh -huh. I was putting that grant proposal together. And then it ended up getting funding. And the big, the big, the key element to that proposal was, and I really enjoy going back and re reading the reviewer comments from that because <laughs> they're like, yeah, no way. There's no way this is going to be, you're not going to be able to pull this off because we were going to attempt to do some measurements that are typically aligned more often in the lab. We were going to try to take those out into the field. And there's really two kinds of field research proposals. You can walk outside of the lab, once you're outside that door, you're in the field. That's one version of field research. It departs from a predictable location and just goes out into the open space. Mm -hmm. Our version of field research was going to be to try to catch up with wildland firefighters while they were on assignment, okay. which meant we had to be approved to go out on the fire line with these teams if we needed to. And so we went through all of the necessary training and all of the necessary uh, work capacity testing to get our red card so that we could go out on the fire line uh, if need be. And, and, and indeed, that must have been super enlightening as well, because it sort of brings to life some of the, the stressors and environmental factors that you're going to be studying. You're learning firsthand what these guys have to go through, at least to do the training to prepare for the job. Yeah, absolutely. And that firsthand, firsthand experience, firsthand uh, uh, exposure to that workforce and to anything. I mean, all the studies we do, we go through them ourselves yeah. over and over and over before we deploy them on our actual enrolled human subjects. This was going to be no different. The hard part was, A, I didn't really know that much about fire, just from what Brian had told me and what I'd read in Norman McLean's book. Right, right. Uh, and the fact that it, I'm in Missoula, I, I, I might as well learn about fire because fire is in our backyard all the time. And so I really like that model because I like the idea in that grant proposal of saying, okay, we're going to do all this controlled stuff in the lab with males and females to study muscle metabolism. But at the same time, we're going to do all this stuff in the completely unpredictable, unscripted, hostile, environmental working world of the wildland firefighter. Sure. And that, that being able to do research across that entire continuum, for whatever reason, that really, that really got me excited because I didn't know anybody that did that. And I still, to this day, know very few people that do that kind of field research. I know a lot of researchers that do work in the field, in quotes, uh, but a lot of that is uh, simulated. Oh, we're going to take these guys and we're going to have them ride a bike on the road. That's field research. Right, right. Well, it is and, and it isn't. I mean, you, it's fairly predictable. As soon as you start to take away the power that the researcher has over the research design, 
that's when that's when you enter the real world of, of field research where samples get lost, equipment gets destroyed, and new cuss words get invented on a uh, sure basis. it gets a lot harder to do the job <laughs> but but i would assume and you probably make the case that what you learn in those settings is much more valid yeah it's it's it it definitely allows you to speak to a broader uh generalizable audience which is a huge flaw with um basic applied human physiology lab science where you say, here's the environment, here's the feeding strategy, here's the timing, here's the this. Everything is so dialed and everything is so well controlled that when it comes time for you to generalize, it's very difficult to generalize outside of the confines of that research design. Uh, and so I don't do just one. We, we toggle between highly scripted lab studies and then unpredictable uh, field settings, we go back and forth. One helps address, or one helps uh, generate new questions that we can only answer in the other. Sure. And back and forth. Yeah. So, and so maybe tell us. Um, you, know, you mentioned previously that samples get lost, equipment gets destroyed, and cuss words get invented. Maybe, maybe tell us a particularly um, enlightening story about some of the chaos that you've encountered uh, on a fire line or in some other field setting. I think, well, we had, we've had problems in the lab with freezers breaking and sure. samples thawing and you lose those. And I've had trouble with computers and those are predictable, but on a fire in outside of Santa Barbara, California, one time, uh, this was back in 97, we were on the Los Padres National Forest and we had deployed um, four, I think, four doses of this stable isotope combo that allows us to quantify the total energy expenditure of the human over five to seven days. So and this is something the, that like the firefighter ingests or something like that? Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, the dose is proportionate to body mass, Okay, but yeah, it's, it's, it's weighed, uh, to the sixth decimal place. Uh, and you, it's orally delivered. So they just drink it and then you rinse the vessel and you drink the rinse water. So you deliver all the tracer and then you basically track the loss of that tracer through the serial collection of timed urine samples, Okay. which they're going to, they're going to get rid of those anyway. So it's very easy. You don't have to draw blood. You don't have to, it's very, it's, it's pretty hands off, but you have to have access to the person so that you can get those urine samples. Got it. And on this big fire, we found out that uh, the last night that was in, the last day of the study starts the night before. So we have to have access to the subject the night before. And then we get some samples, deliver another tracer, and then get samples and body weight the next morning. So we have to have access to them. And the incident command commander from that fire came up and he says, Brent, uh, that crew that you're studying is not coming back. Uh, they're, they're out on the line and they will be out on the line all night. So what do you want to do? And I go, well, we really need to get those samples. And he said, well, do you guys have your red cards? And I'm like, yep, here you go. He goes, you got all your gear. And I go, yep, here you go. He goes, well, go talk to the hella base. They'll shuttle you in there. Jeez Louise. So the red cards, the red cards are just these cards that say you're legit to be on the line. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. they say, okay, you're getting on a helicopter. 
Yeah, within about half an hour from that, we were in a helicopter flying over the fire right into the middle of it. Oh my god! To tie in with to tie in with the Lolo hotshots. Yeah, which was really freaking cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Had you been, ever been on a helicopter before? No, no, I've never been on a helicopter. I mean, it was outstanding. And with this grad student at the time, he was scared out of his wits, uh, which, and I was too, but I was, I was more just excited with the opportunity that we are flying on a helicopter over a 30,000 acre fire wow. to drop in and get a urine sample. <laughs> A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Steve Albini, and you're listening to A New Angle. And I just felt so cool at that time. Uh, but that was, uh, we haven't really had too many situations where the study has exploded on mm-hmm. us and we can't do anything. Sure. Um, we've, we were doing a, a very large scale overtraining study with a group of really well-trained cyclists. And there was a, we had a bad accident, not quite half the way through the, the ride. I mean, this is a 2000 mile study, 21 days. And we had a bad crash because the group, one of the lead riders hit a, a piece of debris in the road. And it just was a pileup and we had to go to the emergency room and two guys had to get treated. And I had to call the human subjects committee. And I was so fearful oh, that geez. they were going to say the study's too dangerous. We're shutting it down. Uh, but it was nothing that we did mm-hmm. that created the situation. That was an inherent risk of riding a bicycle on the road. And so they, we were able to continue. Um, but yeah, I think about all those studies that we've done and we, we have really haven't had too many problems that we, we've always been able to, to pivot and, and uh, recover from it. Um, fortunately, we were not in the middle of any data collection at the time this COVID-19 thing sure. shut everything down. I think about that all the time. I think, my goodness, we could have been in the middle of a training study. We could have been in the middle of some muscle response study and everything shuts down. We, we were fortunate to be kind of in between. Right. And it's one thing to like have to shut down a particular project. I mean, it's another thing listeners should, should keep in mind that, you know, a lot of these projects involve, you know, federal funding agencies that have pledged, you know, multiple millions of dollars over multiple years. So having to shut something down midstream can have really significant consequences on many dimensions. Um, You mentioned the words sort of creativity and pivoting there and COVID, that seems like a a sort of a fortuitous time to pivot the conversation to some of the creative pursuits that you've engaged in during the pandemic. And that is development of this children's book uh, about your two dogs, (laughs) Rango and Banjo. Tell us us about Brent. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me. Like, I feel like every time I talk to you, you've got some new, awesome, slash crazy idea that you're working on uh the children's book kind of came out of the blue tell me about it well i i started playing around with the idea that i've always struggled and i've always tried albeit not very effectively to students that scientists need to figure out a way to share their world of work better Mm -hmm. 
And scientists are notoriously bad at sharing their findings with the outside world. Scientists are not awesome at sharing their research with other scientists. Um, and so when, when we started doing stuff with firefighters, I became bent on this idea that if we're gonna, if we're gonna go down this path and we're gonna have these folks take the time to be in our studies, we better be able to explain to them why we're doing it and what the outcome of the study means and how can that make their job safer? And how can we become more connected with that community? Sure. And so that's always been a massive, more so with that community than any other. Like, I don't really care so much about, uh, I mean, I loved working with triathletes, but I don't really care so much about like, connecting with them on a different level and making their life safer and better and awesome. And so they can talk more about how they train. <laughs> it's, it's just different. It's different with an athlete than it is with a firefighter because a firefighter, their platform and world of work is way different than getting in 25 hours a week training or whatever. Well, um, they're serving, so, they're serving, a, you know, a, an important service to our community. Protecting our public yeah. lands, protecting our homes, yep. our lives in, yep. in some instances. So th these guys have there's there's a nobility to their pursuit that is that is, you know, I admire your commitment to supporting it. Yeah, there I've always looked at them as sort of an enduro tactical athlete that is uh, they're like the special forces that protect our national resources. Mm -hmm. I guess, um, and so I've always I've always been committed probably more so in the last 10 years than ever to always say yes whenever I can. Can you come talk to our crew? Can you come to this conference? Can you talk to the safety officers? Can you share with us the research they've done and what it means? Uh, I've always said, try to say yes to all those engagements. A lot of them now are on Zoom. <laughs> but uh, I always felt like I was falling flat though in some ways. Like okay. I'm I feel really good about talking to these groups, but then when you talk to crews and you realize that sometimes it's not the work that's the hardest part of the job, sometimes it seems like the hardest part of the job is, is having a family on top of that physical, mm -hmm. physically demanding, time consuming away from your normal life for 14 days at a time. And I, my kids were started from scratch and grew up in the 25 years that I chased all these firefighters. And so I got a little taste of that every time I would go off for a, a fire assignment to do these studies. And I recognized this is really hard on my family and Joe doesn't like it and the kids don't like it. And no matter what my stories are, it's still hard. Sure. And so I kind of tucked that aside and didn't really think anything of it, just focused on the research. But then I was, I was playing around on the mountain. This was like late 2018. And I was playing around with Rango and Banjo, all these two border collies that I have. Um, and I'm just watching them just, just seemingly work the mountain. Like, hmm. Hey dad, we 
this is probably going to be the hike where we find all those sheep we've been looking for. And <laughs> finally, we're just going to, we're going to keep looking and we're not giving up and you're going to be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just watching them and thinking and thinking. And then I, it just popped into my head. Gosh, it'd be so funny. It, those, the personalities of these two dogs are just fascinating to me. And it'd be so funny if they ran a fire crew, that'd be hilarious. That'd be such a fun little story to tell. And then I thought, well, why? I, there's no rules. Why can't I tell yeah. that story? Why not tell it I, now? I would love to tell that story. <laughs> and so I thought about it. I even came home that night and I told Joe, I said, I think I want to write a kid's book. And she just <laughs> looked at me. I can imagine what she would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think she looked at me and her head rolls back and she's like, takes a deep breath and thinks, oh, just when I thought I had you reeled in. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> this is your new plan. But so I start playing with it the next morning and I'm like, this could be a thing. Like, this is really intriguing. And uh, so I, I kind of whipped through the story in a few months and then I back up and I think, okay, I got to digest this a little bit. And then I, I've constantly gone back and forth uh adding to it or taking things or tweaking it here and there but um it's been a really rewarding creative outlet in my spare time to it's what's really fun is to like do science do science there's not a lot of wiggle room and then i can flip a switch and i can work on that a little bit and that's been really life-giving especially in this in this covid shutdown uh to to have that and to always think to myself, this is a this is a really fun extension of the research that I've done for 25 years. It's just different. Yeah. I'm not trying to explain to a kid muscle metabolism. I'm going to tell a story. And the person that's going to explain some of that is ultimately the person that's reading that story to that child. And they're going to be able to pepper that story with their own experiences. And so I think that part is, I, I, I know for a fact that the fire community is going to get more out of this silly little children's book than they will out of all of my research combined in terms of a, a, a product that's going to make a difference on a, on a large scale, at least I hope. So, um, so tell us kind of as specific as you can. I mean, certainly we want people to go out and, and, and get the book and we'll sort of explain how, how it's available, but Give us a little sort of uh, preview of these two characters, Rango and Banjo, and they're, you know, leading a fire crew. What are they What are they up to? Well, why don't I read you the first few sentences oh, of the story? Okay. Let's do it. So this is the very first, this is the opening scene of the story. So to set the stage, uh, this is a crew of dogs. Uh, normally it's a hotshot crew. This is the Missoula, or not the Missoula. This is the Zootown hot dogs. So they're a hotshot <laughs> crew made of dogs. Uh, so the sun came up over Mount Sentinel as Rango tightened his laces and took a deep breath. The radio crackled in the back office of the Zootown hot dog fire station, barking weather reports for the Northern Rockies Region 5. The fire danger had been on the rise in the Southwest and across the Great Basin. Hearing the weather report, Rango looked over his crew list, smiled, and began to wag his tail. Rango thought about reconnecting with his shaggy fire crew and the new fire season that was likely to be full of big adventures. 
Rango is the new crew boss for the Zootown Hot Dogs, one of the top fire crews in the country that protects the little mountain town of Missoula, Montana. However, hot dogs also travel wherever fires happen in the forest. Hot dogs are the first in and the last out, making sure that the fire is completely contained so that the wild animals can safely return to their homes in the forest. <laughs> so oh, the story, I guess, is uh, um, Rango's the seasoned uh, wood dog. He's the seasoned uh, crew superintendent. Yep. And every one of these fire crews, as we've studied them, uh, it's it's a, it's kind of amazing how there's a, there's quite a bit of turnover mm -hmm. in these crews of twenty people or so, uh, and so he, he, it's it'd be rare for you to get more than seventy five percent of your crew back the second year, because they might bounce off to a different crew or sure. go to a different position or whatever, and so rookies are a big part of the 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 crew every year there's new rookies and so banjo being the pup that he is uh he became the token uh rookie character and the main character for the book there's another rookie that is based on a an old a beagle um dog that joe and i had when we were first married i did change his name because i like his new name uh the other rookie's name is flapjack flapjack and i he's love a, it he's a, he's a little beagle he's a little beagle but uh, him and Banjo, uh, the, the cards are stacked against them as far as every one of these veteran uh, hot dogs is considered. They're, they're the low person on the person's on the crew. Oh, yeah. And the all, other, the pack, uh, uh, all the pack dynamics have to be a, an apt metaphor for how some of these crews work, <laughs> I would suppose. Exactly. Exactly. So, it, it, yeah, it just starts off with their early training and some of the pranks that the the other crew members, the uh, the male dogs and the female dogs pull on on Banjo and Rango. And and so then they get their first assignment and their first assignment is is up going to the Sun Road uh, in Glacier. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of paint the picture of Glacier and talk about their travels up going to the Sun and what they see. And, and then some of the experiences in that fire. Uh, and then it culminates with a fire that's threatening the town of Missoula that's uh, on Mount Jumbo. Okay. And how the crew deals with that and how Banjo surprises Rango with some of his tactics and knowledge. And yeah. Awesome. And, you know, you've sent me <laughs> some of the illustrations and folks can, you know, we'll, we'll point folks to the Kickstarter campaign here shortly. The illustrations are just uh, phenomenal. How did how did you go about getting these made? Uh, man, I that's the one. I I love. I I've been an artist. I've done all kinds of art, sculpture, woodworking, building, whatever. The one the one kind of art that's frustrating and painful for me to even try is drawing hmm. and painting. I just can't. I can see it too fast. Sure. And can't lay it down fast enough. And I so I I hit roadblocks, and so I knew I would not be able to do the illustrations, uh, but I I had in my head a very elaborate vision for what each one of these were, and so I would write out what that what that description would be. And I'm like, how in the world am I going to find an artist that can look at that and say, I hear what you're saying. Here's what I think. And so there's some, 
there's an online uh, artist, um, I guess, depot or a site that you can go to sure. that the the publisher that I'm working with at a Bozeman, which is Key Listener Publishing, um, he, he kind of tipped me off to it. Because at the same time, I was playing with another book, uh, another real simple book that's called uh, A Moon Song for Tumbleweed. And I kind of fast-tracked that one. I put this one on hold and I fast-tracked that one to kind of get my feet wet working with these online artists. Mm -hmm. This is, unfortunately, I tried and tried to get some local artists involved. I tried a couple of local artists that I know, and I talked to an artist in Bozeman that I'd seen her work and I really loved it. Uh, both were like, no, not my cup of tea or I'm too busy or, and so I just kept trying and trying. And then I found this online source. Basically you, 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 you put out your vision and you, you look through their portfolios and you try to find someone that matches up with your vision. And then you start communicating with them through this portal. Mm -hmm. They send you an example and you say, I like it, or could you do this? And then you just establish a relationship uh, back and forth with them um, and hope that it's fruitful. And I had an awesome experience working on that really simple book, the Moonsong book with an artist in the UK that was from the Czech Republic, hmm. but she lives in the UK now. And okay. I, it was, that was happening right at kind of the onset of this COVID thing. Sure. And so like tensions were high in the community or in the country and just the whole can't go to work, can't do your normal thing was just like squeezing down on all of us. I was feeling that like everyone else. And then I kept communicating with this artist and I'm like, this is the greatest part of my whole week is being able to write on this and communicate with you and see this thing coming together. So it was like, I had this little light of hope in the darkness uh and working on that book was one of was one of the really positive things then and i wouldn't have done that i would not have pulled this all together if it wouldn't have been for the COVID. and uh so in a lot of ways i i feel like that's that's given me some uh fuel to to see these through but uh the artist that i'm working on for rango and banjo i met him through the same portal he's in chicago okay and I sent him some stuff thinking how in the world is, I, I loved his portfolio. I loved it. He had some stuff with some bears, like some grizzly bears. And I just loved him to death. And I, I told him, I said, that, that's what I really, I really like that style. And he's like, well, let me just send me a narrative and I'll see what I can do. And I sent him uh, just a description of the story and uh, sort of history on my work with fire and how it was important for me to get this dialed so it's pretty fire centric. So a firefighter is going to pick it up. They're not going to be like, yeah, that doesn't happen. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be legit so, for the audience. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, he sent me the first prototype pencil sketch and I was, I got it. And of course it comes electronically. I open my computer and I see it and I'm like, bingo yeah that's that it. is it that's so that's the character and um so it's it's a it's a long tedious process it's three steps each illustration from pencil sketch to a line drawing wow. to the final color drawing um and i guess you would describe these as they're they're kind of 
they're kind of animated characters. The mm -hmm. colors are really rich. Um, the facial expression on the characters is just, uh, it's wonderful. And it, it's, it cracks me up because when I look at an illustration, I can tie it to a situation that I was in on a fire. Of course, typically. Yeah. And then I see Rango and Banjo in that situation. I can tie it to their personalities. <laughs> so it's really, a, it's a really interesting parallel world to put together. So but, people want to you know. kind of access this parallel world. How can, I know, I know you got a Kickstarter campaign going on. It's sort of coming to a close shortly. Um, how can folks find that? Where can they learn more about this book and maybe pre-order yeah, their think, hands on? I think the best way I set up early on, I'd never made a website before. And I learned through the husband of one of my former awesome students, mm -hmm. Uh, Lindsey Corbin, who's actually an Ironman triathlete extraordinaire, right. one of the better U.S. athletes. Her husband, Chris Corbin, I've kept in good communication with those two sweethearts. And uh, Chris was like, yeah, I can help you with some of the some of the Squarespace stuff. So he, he gave me some lessons over Zoom. And I think more than anything, he just gave me the confidence to jump in and do it. Yep. And so I built the website from scratch and learned a lot about how to do things and how not to do things. So I, I built a website that's just called Rango and Banjo.com. Uh, Rango with a W. W -A yeah. W-R-A-N-G-O, right? Yeah. And Banjo.com. Mm -hmm. And in that website, I've tried to upload illustrations and examples from the story and kind of a, uh, a little video that I made in the cabin early COVID when it was freezing cold uh, <laughs> about why and why in the world would I think about doing this instead of more research? And then I thought, you know, this is kind of, this is, this is a different kind of research. It's a different kind of strategy to reach the folks that I've come so close to working with over the years. So, uh, and it's also just, a, it's another way to just give back to that community. So the Kickstarter thing, uh, there's a link to the Kickstarter on the webpage. That's probably the easiest way, or you could go with a Kickstarter and just uh, search for Rango and Banjo. It's the only Rango on all of Kickstarter. Um, and so that's been going very well. And a lot of it is going well because the fire community has embraced it. Sure. Which I was, I was nervous about that at first. Cause who's this, who's this research guy writing a, writing a story about our world. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I have used several fire advisors, uh, in this process. One is the superintendent for the Eldorado hotshots in California, mm -hmm. Ben Strawn, fantastic dude. And he's just, it's, it's always fun to chat with him about the physiology. And so it was fun for me to bounce this idea off of him and say, Hey, I have this different idea and him just embrace it from the get go. And then another local character that's really helped in an amazing way is, uh, a retired smoke jumper named uh, Wayne Williams. Sure, of course. Everybody in Missoula or everybody in fire knows him as WW. Mm -hmm. I know him as Wayne. <laughs> uh, and so Wayne has been instrumental in making sure that some of the concepts and some of the tactics and even some of the expressions and terminology are, are accurate. So if anybody in fire doesn't like the way I said it, you get to take that up with uh, an, a, a, a smoke jumper who was, in fire for 42 years right well um, like most things you've done your research you've, you've made it legit and i um 
you know, I respect the humility you brought to the project. I mean, yeah, you want to make it true to life in many, in many yeah. uh, respects. And, and, and it, same, it seems like the same ethic that you bring to your, to your scientific inquiry you've brought to this children's book. That's the, I, I hope so. I hope so. I think every time I think about it, I think I, I don't second guess myself usually. And in this, this is no exception. I've never looked back. And at this point, it's too late anyways. But uh, if somebody says they don't think it's a good idea, well, that's your opinion. I've worked my butt off in fire for 25 years, and uh, this has been an absolute blast. And I hope it's a gift to that community. My goal is to use some of the proceeds if the Kickstarter does above and beyond. I want to use some of that those profits so that I have money to travel, to visit with crews if need be. Mm-hmm. And in the process... In the process, I hope to do two things, connect to elementary school, elementary schools and their librarians to give them uh, some of the books and to, com- to hopefully connect to some of the families and even some of the local libraries to give them copies of the books. Come, sure. Here you go. Have this in your library. At the same time, I'd love to be able to visit with some of the local high schools on behalf of the university and say, here's the kind of research that you can do with humans. Here's the kind of research we do at the University of Montana and sort of use that to to, uh, recruit. I've done that a few times um, on different travels, but yeah, that's that's kind of my goal is to sort of further the education within the community and, and give some stuff back to the community, so. Well, Brent, that seems like a great uh, spirit with which to uh, land this episode. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate your work, the attitude you bring to it, and and our friendship. It's been fun, and I I sort of look forward to uh, future chapters. Right on. I'll, I'll keep coming up. I'll keep trying to dream up ways to surprise you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.